So perhaps even after today's vows, you're still asking, so what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? Wherein I can be assured that I am right with God, that I can be set free from the fear of God's condemnation or rejection. Certain, certain that my ultimate destiny is an eternal life. An eternal life where my self-same body is going to be restored to my self-same spirit on this self-same earth in heaven. Living in utter utopian bliss where there is nothing but love everywhere. What must I do? Last week, the answer was clear, concise, and stated without equivocation. It's so easy, we heard. It's really, really easy. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is seek. All you have to do is just knock. And it will be opened to you. He goes on to make sure that you know that that this isn't double talk. For everyone, he says, who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Mm. It is really that easy to enter the kingdom of God. Just ask, want it. Just seek, find it in scripture, which is clear as a bell. And just knock and experience and confirm the assurance that comes when you are admitted and confirmed into the life of the church through its doors. So why, why does our passage go on to say, enter by the narrow gate? For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, many. That is the wide that is the lead to destruction road, many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. The majority don't find it. I want you to let that sink in a little bit. Nowhere in scripture do we find anything less than that statement. Throughout the Old New Testament, it is declared over and over and over, over and over and over. It's but a remnant. It's a remnant who get on that narrow road. And so we need to think about this for a minute. We are told in our passage today that relatively few will enter and receive this eternal life. And yet it's supposed to be so easy, so easy. So why doesn't everyone have it? You're starting to think. Why, in fact, does even the scripture describe those who do have it as a remnant, as I've said? Is this God speaking out of both sides of his mouth? Is this a riddle? From it's easy to it's hard? What gives? So we have some work to do. Turn on your thinking caps, which you always should when you come into the house of God. He's not a little mind. But more importantly, open your heart to receive this hard and yet clarifying news. Even as it will not in the least 
as you'll discover, compromise for a moment that it is, in fact, easy to enter the kingdom of God. We will see today, as I'll repeat over and over, maybe by the end you will have memorized it, but we will understand what G.K. Chesterton once observed, how the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. Let us pray. Father, come and speak truth into our lives, your truth. Give us a heart to conform, confirm not to our truth, but to your truth. Give us the wisdom to see that your truth is the only truth that is true. Absolutely. The only truth that will ultimately determine our destiny in our life. Absolutely. We would be fools not to hear. Help us, Lord, to hear. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so the premise of this passage is very, very simple and plain. This idea of a narrow gate into the kingdom of God. And again, it's not because it's not easy. But I'm going to give you a clue and then we'll see it. It's because there's something about the kingdom of God that makes people not want it. Did you notice what Chesterton said? Did you notice what the passage is saying? It's those who enter into that road. It's that many don't enter even the road. Those who truly do seems to suggest typically stay on it. They don't even try it because they don't want it. It's not something inherent to the kingdom of God, but it's something inherent about ourselves and the lure of other kingdoms, perhaps, in this world that leads then to our own description. And so I want to notice carefully here, our passage presents two paths. One road goes this way, one goes that way. One road leads to destruction, one road leads to life. And this passage wants to make clear how to distinguish these two paths, lest we would miss it. And he does this, or the scripture does this, by making three points of comparison or contrast by way of comparison. Here they are, three. One, first of all, it's a comparison of experience. One road of most resistance versus one road of least resistance. In other words, there's one road where something about us and the world resist it, and yet there's another road that seems too easy in a way that we want it without any resistance. Let me try to parse that out. He says the gate is wide and the road is spacious that leads to destruction. That is to say, the most immediately pleasant road is wide. These words actually double for that. In cases like 1 Peter 1 and James chapter 1, and over and over, we see how it is the, the desire issue is what's being talked about here. So, for instance, Peter says it this way, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's what one road offers, according to Peter. 
He's not using the language of road here, of course. And then he compares it to the one that you escaped. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of a sinful desire. This most pleasant and easy road is an issue of desire. It's easy. James says it this way, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived and gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It all begins with that desire. James 4.2 says it this way, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, that is the kingdom of God, because you do not ask. That's the problem. And so here we have this very unpleasant way, a play, a way that, that is described as something that is, would be immediately gratifying to us, immediately enticing to us. It's the simple way in the sense that, that it, it gives us that immediate reward over against this difficult or narrow road. There's actually a play on words here. This, this Greek road, steno, is, is both the word narrow and difficult. Translated in either way throughout the New Testament, you could have just as well, this is the difficult road or this is the narrow road. Obviously for the play, in the comparison, he compares it to the wide and spacious road, where spacious being more desirable, if, if you will, immediately more desirable, versus the narrow, not immediately more desirable. We're going to work that out, but that's the key here. And so here we have this idea of a road that's, that's here described as hard. That is to say, the word literally is often translated with the word distressful. A road of groaning. A road of sacrificing. And it's a road well-traveled. That is a road of popularity, secondly. And that's the second comparison. If one road is easy and hard, not, it's, not, it's not talking about how easy it is to get on the road. It's that it's not desirable because what is discerned is that the road is hard or undesirable. At least according to an immediate gratifying thing. It appeals to something. We're going to go back to that. Hold on to that. But that's the first comparison. The second comparison is of popularity. For the reason noted in first comparison, one well-traveled one, rarely traveled. Those are the comparisons. And here we have it. There are many who take it, the immediately gratifying road, and there are few who find it. That is, the, the delayed gratification, if you will, but the discernment of that road that is narrow, even if at times hard. Notice then the anti-populist sentiment here. It, you know, living in America that is so, I don't think we can appreciate, I mean, it's hard to appreciate that, um, how anti or, or countercultural that concept is. I mean, I don't have time to opine about it, but there was most of history that did not live in democracies. And most of histories couldn't conceive of the idea that popularity was a means through discerning wisdom or truth. Ordinarily, that was discerned either through some kind of a monarch or king 
who had been ordained of the gods somehow to dispense the truth from the gods, or it was discerned through some kind of representational government of some sort, maybe perhaps in a patriarchal sense of a village, like with Abraham, it would come through him, or Moses, it would come through him. It's just inconceivable to think in most of world history that the way you know the truth, the way you find right and wrong, the, what authenticates something as validated is by popularity. The scriptures everywhere describe popularity not in the terms of somehow vindicating the truth. We had this idea of common sense. And very quickly, we equate that with popularity, as in the commoner. Now, you can talk about common sense in the historic philosophical sense if you know about common sense realism. And it really doesn't deal with what I just said, popularity, if you've been familiar with that idea. But this is really profound when you stop to think about it. The point is not that there will be few in heaven, as in to make a statement about how many are in heaven. We know that there are going to be fewer in heaven than there are not in heaven, is what we know. The popular way will be ordinarily the wrong one. The scripture's filled with these, these instances, aren't they? Just stop and think about it. Noah. I mean, everybody thought he was a nutcase. Very few entered into that heavenly ark. And the road into it was a very hard road, a very hard decision to make. Oh, it's, it's the road that, left, that led to light, all right. It was a blessed road. I'll guarantee you after the flood that nobody in that, that, that ark had any qualms with that road. But you see, to get into that ark was a very hard thing insofar as no one wanted it. They saw it as an unnecessary and useless sacrifice. You think of Israel in relation to the other nations. Constantly, constantly Israel is this little small minority nation. Always, always, always swimming upstream. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You think of Christ's ministry, hardly a glitch in Roman history. We think about just how small and tiny the minority of Christians were in the first century. We think about how even the disciples who had worked with him and prayed with him and, and eaten with him, that there's a moment when many of his disciples turned their back and no longer went about with him. Where Christ would say, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Ultimately, by way of comparison, one road is popular, one road is not. One road is the road of the cross, one road is immediate gratification. Perhaps the gratification is popularity. Perhaps the gratification is just for once feeling comfortable in the world. Man, I know that feeling, don't you? Just let me once feel kind of like I belong here, even though the Bible tells me everywhere that I don't. But I want so badly to fit in. Just once could I see something good said about the church on, on ABC News or CBS News or whoever? Wouldn't that be cool? Oh, man, it'd be a wonderful moment. 
Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Not in this world. Ultimately, it's an unpopulous movement throughout biblical history. So that's the second comparison. It's not immediately gratifying. It's not popular, this narrow road. And by comparison of destiny, of course, that's the driving point here. Road to where? Where does it lead? And of course, very clear and stark contrast again. One leads to utter destruction. That's the word, utter destruction. It's a catastrophe. It's an absolute catastrophe. What happens on that end of that road? Unlike any catastrophe you could ever, ever imagine in this life. And the other leads to an incredibly abundant life of eternity. A utopian that makes all utopianism literature look like nothing in comparison. It's really said in that kind of stark contrast. Again, I have scriptures here that speak, use the same language that describe all of this. I mean, Peter says that they deliberately ignore this fact that, that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago and on earth was formed out of water and by means of water through which the world of what time was deluged with the water and perished. That is the language of this passage. He's referring back to the flood and the idea of what happened at the flood to those who did not get in that ark. By the, by the same word, the present heavens and earth had been reserved for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction. That compared to life. Of course, throughout the scriptures, Christ makes this contract, I think, again, of the thief who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that he may have life and life more abundant. When this idea of life is explained, and particularly eternal life is explained... It's important that you understand that eternal life is not just a quantity term. It really isn't. It's, it's almost a bad translation. The word eternity is this, it's, it's the, a word that describes this qualitative, extraordinary experience of perfection. So you think of eternity as a word of perfect time or complete time or un rival time or never-ending time. Well, think of that same word, which has as its root the same concept of also eternal life as in the quality of that life. A life that is just wonderful, beyond description. I mean, there's several scriptures that try desperately using poetry and imagery to try to express what's at the end of this other road. This road that is narrow, that few enter in. One of my favorite expressions, and it's on a little plaque that I have up at my little one-room, you know, shed cabin up in the back of the woods of the Adirondacks. And there you would see in this little plaque, I put this passage on there, and I think of it all the time. As, as, as it's a metaphor to me. It's like a little, I don't know, common grace. It's not a sacrament, but it's like a common sacrament of some sort that reminds me, no, this isn't Walden's Pond, though that's partly what inspired my vision for it. But ultimately, this is a foretaste 
when we, for a moment, step back and look at the world and its beauty, it's a foretaste. And this is what was happening in this passage in Isaiah 25. Let me read it for you. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. You have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For on this mountain, you got to understand, often the mountain imagery is the mountain of the imagery of the heavens. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-defined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Boom. It's going to be done. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him so long. I take a breath. That is so incredible. That he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in the salvation. It's really not a hard exegetical passage. One road is easy, popular, leads to death and destruction. One road is hard, unpopular, leads to abundant life. Yes, it's easy. All you need to do is ask. All you need to do is seek. All you need to do is knock. But not many people want it. That's the problem. The problem isn't that God hasn't given us everything we need to get it. It couldn't be easier. Again, it doesn't require a high IQ. Just got to accept the clear promises of God that are absolutely clear in Scripture that the kingdom of God is for everyone who believes in it as to want it. It doesn't require a resume filled with good works. Just God to acknowledge that we don't have a resume of good works. It's really all it takes. There is no resume. The, the thing that it requires is that you go and say, I don't have a resume. Bingo. You won. Doesn't require that we build it. Christ already built it and gave it to us in the church. It's built upon the cornerstone of the apostles' teaching with Christ as the cornerstone. Just go there. Be admitted into it by grace through faith alone and you're in. You've got it. You're on the road and you're going to abundant life. That's your destiny. It's easy. If easy then, so why do so few have it? The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. I.e., it's not because if you get on it, really get on it, you're going to ever regret it. Not ultimately, at least. Rather, it has been found difficult and left untried. Do you hear what Chesterton is saying, that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting? The problem is not that there is a problem with the kingdom of God. Those who are in it will not be disappointed eventually, not even close. Just ask anyone who has persevered in their faith until the end and are now in heaven. Go ahead. Go ask them. Oh, well, I wish we could. They'd tell you, oh, man, it was the best decision of my life. What these kids profess today, persevering in that over and over through repentance and faith, 
It is absolutely the number one most important decision that was ever made in their life. And it will not be regretted no matter what trial is going to await them. And there will be many. Again, in the words of G.K. Chesterton, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Hebrews says it this way, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward for you. Don't throw it away. Many whose faith is revealed ultimately when they throw it away. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, it says in Hebrews 11. Whoever would draw near to God must believe God, that he exists, and that he is rewarder of those who seek him. Seek, and you will find. So what is it? Why aren't many entering into the kingdom of God? Again, what does he say, Cass Chesterton? It has been found difficult and left untried. Why so difficult to want it if not something inherent about the kingdom of God? Well, I want you to notice what, uh, in, in the end here, what the context of this passage is. You heard it read. I made sure you read all of it. I'll probably go back to at least one of these passages so that today we don't have the time to really work through it. But just look at these. This isn't just a random sampling of wisdom saying in Hebrews on the Sermon on the Mount. As I've said, these are all take-homes from sermons that were being preached. You can't forget that. So easy to look at the Sermon on the Mount and just think that, oh, you know, here's just this kind of random list of stuff. No, these are sermons. And Matthew's carefully redacting this in a manner that, it, that is going to, to somehow help us understand what each one of these sermons meant. And so in his infinite wisdom... And you go, you're scratching your head at first. You're going, what, why? He tells you this, this ask, and you can seek, and you should find, doc, and it should be open to you. And then he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law of the prophets. And then the narrow road is, I'm going, why'd you put that in there? What's going on? Stop and think about it. And I'll give you a hint in the Old Testament reading. You see this narrow road? It's also going to be where you're going to find true love. We call it the golden rule. You know, the do unto others as you would have them do unto you is a restatement of what Paul says in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambitious or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I'm beginning to find out why this road is so narrow, aren't you? Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hmm. That's what I want to do in my flesh, Right? Hot dog, that, that door looks good to me. I'm going to give up my life for you. I'm being a little playful, but I want you to think about it. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of selfless love. Over and over, Christ will describe that as the fruit of the kingdom. By this, they will know that you're to my disciples if you love one another. It's the very fruit 
than it is to judge us as to whether we are participating on that road that is narrow. And that love will lead us to many and various sacrifices. Too many to count. Oh, we love talking about love, la, 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 blah, 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 kumbaya, but no, it means, dang it, I'd planned to go to the river and fish this week. Dang, I'd had a dream for this kind of house. Dang, and I would have loved to have done this with my spare time. Dang, I don't want it. I really don't know if I want to serve in this kingdom of God. I don't really know if I want to be an officer in this kingdom of God. I don't really know if I want to become a Christian in this kingdom of God because I want my own time, my own money, my own house, my own gender, my own, my own, my own, my own. And that's right. That's right. That just won't be on that road. At least not its characteristic attribute. We want selfish love instead. I mean, Paul makes the point clear in 2 Timothy for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Isn't it interesting that lovers of self leads to animosity and malice and, and grumbling and unhappiness? 2 Timothy 3, 4, treacherous, reckless, swollen, and conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's a problem of love that makes it hard to enter the narrow road. We don't want it because we love ourselves. Now, here's the irony. You see, the short-sighted nature of rebellion against God. What is the original sin? Of course we know what it is. It's that we can't see past our selfishness, wherein we will give our lives in love to God, who's already loved us with love unimaginable by my very creation itself, much less my redemption. But I can't give my love to God. Paul says, I want to give it to myself. That's what, let's just, let's just get rid of all this bull intellectual stuff. There's nobody that hadn't gone into that road because there's an intellectual problem with the doctrine of God or the belief in God. That's a bunch of baloney. No one, I can say it from scripture, it's not a credible problem to believe in God. If you'll just be honest. I mean, come on, disprove God to me, please. Somebody do it. They keep trying, but it can't be done. And tell me why it's less reasonable to believe in God than it is to believe in no God. And yet I'm sitting here looking at people that are very godlike and they're incredible persons and personality. And it just comes from, I mean, come on. I have to just literally throw my head in the trash to believe that. No, this is not the problem. The problem is love. But just for a moment, imagine, if I could, I'm going to sound real Beatle-esque. Except for, ironically, they put love in this song where there's no religion. I mean, oh gosh. But just imagine a world that put others' interests before their own. Just imagine that. We think at first that our interests would get lost, don't we? Quite the contrary. Our interests would be served and yet without violence, without lust and hate and prejudice, without anger, without hurt, without envy, without manipulation. Would that world be so bad? I mean, God must look down upon us from heaven and think, oh, so small-minded and so short-sighted as these humans and their rebellion against me. If only they could see, if only they could see the beautiful vision that I have for them, a world of love. 
selfless, beautiful, pure love. Where we abandon our selfish ambitions and our ambitions are now to serve and to love and to care for and to mediate God's love to them. Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. I get it. The golden rule set me up for it perfectly. And then again, there's this passage right after our passage about false prophets. I won't reread it. You heard it read. Two things notice. The the false prophets are described as those who come in sheep's clothing. They will do things like prophesy and heal and all kinds of stuff, these false prophets that are in sheep clothing. They will be preaching Christ. Paul acknowledges it even in, where is it? That some do it out of false ambition, but you know, Christ at least his word's getting out. He's going to leverage that as he even condemns their preaching. You see, this other option Self-love. It will come in all kinds of ways. And there, and here Paul, and here Matthew is reminding us of Jesus' teaching that it'll even come to you looking like it's Christian. The fact is, there are many alternative kingdoms that can be Christianized. Health and wealth, and you could go on and on. All kinds of kingdoms. Transformation of the world for self. Justice for self, you know, this cause, so I get accolades for the self. I mean, there could be all, anything, pretty much, can be perverted. Family for me. Parenting for me. I mean, there's so many ways that things could be Christianized and yet idolatrized in a manner that we basically co-opt God to idolize something that in itself is not God. You see, at its core, wanting the kingdom of God is wanting to give our lives back to God in love versus to give our lives to ourselves. And this, of course, is reflected in putting our interest ahead of others, even as that selfish impulse infects everything we do and say every reality, and we see it everywhere. I know we're in this moment of, of race, talking a lot about race relations, and I've preached on it many times. We've put a resource page. I hope you'll read it. But, you know, the thing that, that hit me as I was writing this, because obviously my head's immersed in it right now. I had a wonderful, by the way, many of you re- prayed, a wonderful retreat with the other BOH pastors this last Friday. All-day retreat. It was very important and very necessary. And All of this is swimming in my head, which comes out in a sermon, obviously. But it was interesting, and I shared it with them, how the thing that that most mesmerizes me in my studies of Martin Luther King Jr. was when I came to this reality that by far (laughs) the most frequently reused sermon that he preached, by far, was Love Your Neighbor. That is amazing. Compare that movement guided by that man to what, sadly, we sometimes don't see today in the movement that's still trying to deal with the same problem. It's interesting that when he spoke to predominantly white crowds, 
like his famous speech at Stanford University. He spoke not as to shame them, but as to patiently educate them as the realities of racism and prejudice in a way that empowered them without putting them down. You ought to hear it. Go Google it. It's amazing how he, he lovingly, forcefully, just walked them through. You don't understand. And he, I remember the illustration of pulling your, you know, the guy at the plane that says, just, why don't you just, we just, everybody needs to just pull their boots up by the bootstrap. And in a very almost humorous way, he says, bro, he turned to the guy and says, you don't understand. I didn't have a boot to pull up. And he walks through that in a way that was, you, you could just imagine yourself being the student body and, and saying, you know, he's not berating me. He is, he is enlightening me. It's just amazing what love can do and the power of that love that walked the cross of Christ in passive, nonviolent protest. That's the bad fruit here. That's the second. Now notice he says the bad fruit. Everywhere you see how the kingdom of God is characterized by the law that is written into the heart the law that was promised back in Jeremiah that every, every, isn't it true? Every command can be reduced to one thing, the law of love. And so our passage concludes with this incredible observation. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, following that prophetic comment that even Christian prophets can be following the wrong law. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. To take home, there needs to be a fundamental orientation that needs to change if you're really going to get on that narrow road. Its end is beautiful. But we need to repent of our original sin that begets all sins, the sin of not reciprocating God's love of what created us and sustaining us back to God in full submission to him. And we need to do it and do it and do it over and over and over again. You, you can't get in this kingdom of God on this road and stay on the road and one day say, oh, I'm pretty familiar with this road now and I've learned all the Christianese and I can, you know, I, I've learned how to preach my sermons and all this stuff and, you know, you guys wouldn't know the difference between my heart or not. Well, you probably would. But the point is, is that, that this ask, seek, knock, easy needs to stay in our heart. We've got to keep hungering for it and praying for God to keep making us hunger for it. Praying that he wouldn't let us go to sleep and wander, drift, as the Hebrews author talks about, away from it. So if you're a Christian, pray against drifting. Pray that God renew in you that heart. Wherein the law is written. Where you, every week you come to the table, every day when you pray, you say, God, I give my life to you again. I give it to you again through repentance and faith. And if you're not a believer, again, I understand. I understand that, that you know, why would I want to take that risk and give up self-love? Hmm. I'm thinking of the pilgrim's progress here. And the pilgrim on the way, on the road, if you will, comes upon worldly wise. And he says, the worldly wise man says to the pilgrim, 
Thou hast met with something already, for I see the dirt of the sloth of respond is upon thee. But that sloth is only the beginning of the sorrows that do attend those who go in that narrow way. Hear me, I am older than you. You are like to meet up with, and in the way which you go, wearisome, painful, hunger, perils, nakedness, sword, lions, dragons, darkness, and in the word, death. And, and for what? These things are certainly true, having been conformed by many testimonies. That was the sermon preached by the wolves in sheep clothing prophet, worldly wise man. Many take it. Say, I'm not going up that road. <laughs> the evangelist shows up and he says, keep the light in your eye, pilgrim, and go up directly to that cross. If you can't get there, you need to ask. There's where I'm going to turn the whole sermon. You need to ask for the desire to ask. That your eyes would be enlightened. That you would see the world that you hunger for is only a world that can come through the love of Jesus Christ. And a world dominated by that love for eternity. And so I encourage you to ask for your heart to be changed. That you might want it. In Christ's name, amen.